where we know that in the last year, over 4,000 people around the world have been put to death because of Jesus Christ, because they stand for him. It is a risky business to stand for Jesus. And you are worthy. God of glory. None like you. Father, would you embolden us today? My heart would be that we would look at Stephen, we'd learn from him, and then say, okay, I'm taking this from this, from, from this text, from this lesson. Be bold. Risk. Lay it on the line sometimes. Discern what God is saying and how he's saying it and, and, and step into obedience. Would you help us with that this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are there's moments in your life where it's going to be risky to stand for Jesus Christ. You ever had a moment like that? A moment comes and you realize, oh man, I'm called to stand up here and now in this moment to make Jesus known. The concept of risk, I want to kind of flesh out a couple of things there. Number one, that Christians stand for Christ. That is, I don't need to stand for my opinions. I don't need to make a big deal of that. How much of my parenting conflicts were because of an opinion? At the end of the day, my kid did it one way, I did it another way. Or something in my family went one way and I wanted another way. It was an opinion, and it's ridiculous to live with friction, ongoing friction for an opinion. Or maybe it was a, you know, a, a held, a hard-held conviction. And that's a little bit more difficult to discern how and when and where to stand. You're called to stand for some convictions from time to time. But at the end of the day, we stand for the main thing, and that is the identity of Jesus Christ. If people get that wrong, they'll get everything wrong. And so as Stephen is standing here, just note that he was not standing on his Hellenism. He was chosen to be, if you recall from last week, he was chosen to be a servant and bring the daily distribution, probably of bread, of food, to Greek-speaking widows. That was his role in the church. So the fact that he's going to be put to death for what he says about Jesus and how he says it is, is quite amazing, actually. He just stepped in. He's got the shortest deacon term in the history of the world. Deacon one day, put to death the next day. So for you deacons who are in here today, enjoy your long-standing term, right? But the second thing to really point out about this whole idea of risk is, uh, number one, we, we're going to risk for the main thing, Jesus Christ. But number two, risk implies and, in fact, says, I don't know what's going to happen next. So I'm going to lay it on the line. What's going to happen when you stand for the name of Jesus Christ? We don't know. Some people may come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the risk that you take. Some people in this room, some people in the, maybe through the live stream, uh, could lose their life, be numbered among the 4,000-plus people that might be put to death this calendar year because they named the name of Jesus Christ. It's that important. It's that big a deal. People die for this. 
in your world, in my world, we probably are not in the U.S., in this place, going to be called to die. But isn't it amazing what we do risk? We don't know what's going to happen relationally with that person that we're called to identify Jesus to. We don't know if it's going to be all weird from this point forward if I lay it on the line. We don't know if the relationship will go away altogether. We don't know if we might lose opportunities in our work setting because we name the name of Jesus. We don't know if if our influence in the neighborhood will be limited because of what they say about us after we name the name of Jesus. We don't know. So we withdraw, and what we do is we preserve a future of comfort, taking no risk, because we think that's better than being out there amidst the people and taking the strong stand. And my friend, we're here today to learn that's the better thing. The glory of God, standing for the glory of God, is the better thing to risk an uncertain future that is certain to God. And that's the last thing we want to say. God takes no risks. God's not a God of risk. He's a God of settledness. He's a God of sovereignty. He's a God of omniscience. He knows what's going to happen next. He's holding you in his hand. And he's asking you to risk, he's asking me to risk, saying, I don't know what will happen next. But I do know this, I am called to this mission, stand for Jesus Christ in my generation. That's the thing I'm called to. It's a big goal, and it's worth living for, and it's worth dying for, as we learned from Stephen in this passage today. It's huge. So as we look to Stephen... We, we see that there could be some legal action. That's exactly what happens. Legal action comes against Stephen in this passage today. In these verse, first couple of verses, Stephen is full of grace and power, and these people stand up against him and say, we don't like what you've been saying. And so here's how we're going to put it in our, this point here that, uh, to kind of take it home with us today. As, as bodily danger increases in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, do not fear legal action. Don't be afraid of what can happen, what the legal people or the, uh, even the religious people can do as they try to marginalize you. Don't be afraid of that. And we see in Stephen some examples of how he overcame what would have been fear. Look at verse 10. First thing, the, the first way we overcome this fear, preparation. Be prepared. Get ready. And so, uh, Preparation, verse 10 says this, and they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So he had, he had wisdom. The wisdom we learned last week is, uh, it's like you're a pro at understanding what the scriptures say and mean. You, you see what the scriptures say and mean, you get it. You get that they're pointing to Christ. And then you are uh, really good at at living it out in your life. If Jesus is Lord, he's Lord of my life. And you're getting better and better at wisdom. You're showing the people around you what it looks like for the Lord to be Lord, for Jesus to be king. That's what wisdom's all about. So you're in the scriptures regularly. You're searching them. You're prepared. Not just full of the wisdom, of wisdom. He's full of the Spirit, and I believe that that is a reference 
power. You say, well, why, why do you say that? Well, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the reference to spirit and power is interchangeable. It's the same thing. Power indicates that you're, uh, you're in, you're on mission in the kingdom, and you're seeing results, and those results are coming from what God is doing in and through you. And so here we have Stephen, and Stephen is full of wisdom, and in being full of wisdom and applying God's word to his life and understanding what the Old Testament, what the, the scriptures have taught him about who Jesus is, he is stepping into his role as a spirit-filled man, and he has power in his life to make a difference. So he's being called into these various settings in Jerusalem, and God is using him powerfully to make converts. All of Acts up to this point is about how the gospel is going forth. It's going out. How there's more and more disciples. And I won't do it for you, but if you want a, uh, an assignment this week, you can go through the, the chapters we've been through so far, getting ready for next week, and look at all of the places where it says increase. Look at all of the places where it says more at all of the places where it says that the, the kingdom of God is advancing. All of Acts is about that. It's a transition book that's showing us how in its early days, God was multiplying the effectiveness of disciples. Power. And so that's one of the ways that we get ready. How do we not fear? We get prepared. We know what the scriptures say. We are in the habit of letting the Spirit control our life, and we are on point realizing you and I were called, were called to expand the kingdom of God in this world, in our hearts, in the way we live, and in ministries in the church like Awana or student ministries, through our life group. We're called to that. We're called to that. How else? How are we going to do this? Don't fear legal action. Second concept, if the, the first one has to do with preparation, the second one has to do with prayer. They were praying for this opportunity. Now, I don't know about you, but when a situation comes up and danger is involved, I don't know if it's because I've been a dad, I don't know if it's because I'm a, I think this is what, I'm a wimp. But here's my stock prayer. Lord, protect them. Lord, protect Oh, Lord, protect them. Keep them from harm's way. Lord, let no trouble come to them. And uh, that's not the pattern of the early church. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. They've been praying. They've been praying. They're prepared to stand against legal action. Acts 28, put your finger right at verse 28. Let's go slow through this, okay? Here we go. See, they're praying to God. Say, okay, God, you are sovereign. You're not surprised. You don't take risks. Do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place to us. Do whatever you want to do to us and with us in this place. They're praying. Look at verse 29. Oh, man. And now, Lord... You who have control of our lives, that's what Lord means. And now you who controls our lives, the one we answer to, look upon their threats. And again, um, you know I'm filling it in. Protect, help, keep.
keep from harm, make them healthy, make them whole. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I want you to notice two things there. The absolute risk-taking, crazy, bold, in-your-face, it's time to be on mission together mindset of the, local ch- of the early church. Let's do this. We are called to be salt and light out in the highways and byways, and the early church is an example to us. Now, the, we have to do it with the Spirit. So I'm not saying go out there and make it happen. I'm not saying go out there and, and, and do something. But here's what I'm saying. Let's take this seriously. To risk it for the glory of God. Continue in verse 30. While you stretch your hand out to heal uh, the people so they'll listen, signs and wonders are performed. And so he goes on from there. Look upon their threats and grant that we would be bold. Second thing I want you to see there, not only what they prayed for, it's how they prayed. You see that? Uh, They prayed together. They pray together. Stephen is the only one we see in this whole story of his speech. He's the only one who's sort of the, the face of, the, of the, the church. But the whole church stood behind him in prayer and said, Oh God, oh God, grant that when the moment comes, we stand. We go boldly. We don't shrink away. And so the church was gathering together to pray that they would be bold. And can I just invite you in your life groups, in your Bible studies, with your friends? That is what we ought to be praying. Lord, give us boldness, and we're praying together. Because there will be some who are, who are timid. I'm the wimp that prays for healing and help and wholeness and safety every time. And I need some of you to be in a prayer group with me and say, okay, my heart is turned and I'm ready to pray for boldness now, regardless of what happens to life and limb, regardless of what it might cost us. I'm ready to risk it all for the person and the identity of Jesus Christ. I'm going to lay it on the line and we need to pray to that end and ask that God would would do this in us and through us. Do you have friends who pray like that? You go into a situation and you're about to talk to your mom and you know the relationship with mom is strained and you know that she's so far not where she needs to be in terms of Christ and you call up your friend on the phone before you make that call and say, oh man, would you just pray for me? Because uh, I'm about to do something bold. And number one, I would wimp out if I don't ask you to pray. And number two, I'll say the wrong thing if I speak it in my flesh. Would you pray for me? You have a friend come alongside you and pray. Or in your small group at various points. We're asking God to help us. We're asking God to help us. But not only we don't fear, uh, we don't fear the legal action because we're, we're prepared. We don't feel, fear the legal action because we're praying. And the third concept is we don't fear the legal action because we're expecting it. We're expecting it. Uh, There's no easy future. You will risk life or friendship or relationship as you name, as I name the name of Christ. Mark it down. Write it down. There's no way to escape that. Luke chapter 21. I mean, Jesus prepared us for this. In Luke chapter 21, it's another one of these passages I I put my finger on. I just go like word by word. What did Jesus say to us about what would happen? 
Before the end comes, here's what's going to happen. They will, and this is exactly what was happening to Stephen. They'll lay their hands on you. They'll persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues. Stephen was in uh, court with the Sanhedrin, probably in the shadow of the synagogue, maybe not the synagogue itself or the temple itself. But he was, he was in court with the Sanhedrin. The chief priest said, what do you say for yourself? What are you gonna, how are you going to respond? Delivered up to the synagogues, to the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. To name the name of Jesus, that is our mission when we get called into situations like that. And how should we view that? Trouble? Oh, pray that they release him. Time, pray. Pray that there will be freedom. And listen, there's nothing wrong with praying like that, but, but look at the next verse, verse 13. This will be your opportunity. It's what you've been waiting for. It's an answer to prayer. When we are called into legal situations to defend what we've been saying about Jesus Christ, when our 4,000 brothers and sisters around the world have been put to death, are called into situations like that, it's not a loss. It's not, a, it's not a, some up, a failure on God's part. It's an opportunity. And God spreads the gospel through suffering. Through faithful suffering, God multiplies what he's doing in this world. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So what should I do? Don't, don't fear. Look at, look at the next verse. We're still in Luke 20, 21, verse 14. Settle it, therefore, Jesus is speaking. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand. And that word withstand, remember that Luke, who wrote what Jesus was saying here in Luke 21, he also wrote Acts. Stephen's adversaries could not stand up against. One other thing I want to say before we, pat, before we uh, move on from this, this idea of Stephen being prepared. You see in verse 10, again, now we're back in uh, Acts chapter uh, 7. Uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 6. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And that wasn't just a momentary thing. That wasn't like God showing up magically, giving a moment of clarity where he could just like, okay, I'm totally unprepared. I haven't got given a thought at all about what I'm going to say, but now somehow God's going to magically come and make me be able to speak it. That's not what it's saying when it says don't prepare ahead of time. It's saying don't have a rehearsed speech in your pocket because you don't know what the situation is going to demand exactly, precisely. And so if you look at Stephen... Uh, verse 10, look back up in verse 3. The reason why Stephen was chosen to be a deacon in the local church in the first place. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good, of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. You see that the course of Stephen's life was to be ready, 
Yes, God gave him the words to say in the moment, but it's because he'd been studying the scriptures. He'd been looking into the text. He had knew what the Old Testament says about Jesus Christ. He had studied it, and he was certain about the identity of Jesus. And so uh, verse 3 says his whole life, he's been full of the spirit and wisdom. Now he's called to a ministry. And by the way, he had to be able to say, all right, I've just been called to this brand new ministry, this brand new thing. God's doing a good thing. You ever had a situation like that? Where God is doing a brand new thing, it might even be a dream beginning to come true. But you see how Stephen's willing to lay that down, to risk standing up for the name of Jesus Christ? He's prepared. He is prayed for. And now here comes the persecution. And friends, it it could be coming to us, and if it's not in the form of bodily harm for you in 2020, it may be in the form of broken relationships, strained situations, weird work settings, loss of perceived influence over a group of people, and you and I need to be ready to risk it, to identify Jesus Christ alone as the one who can take away the sins of the world. Now, we could go through, I mean, so as we turn to Stephen's actual speech, there's 50 beautiful verses here. It is, a couple things I want to tell you about it. It is the longest recorded speech in Acts. It's longer than any of Peter's speeches. It's longer than any of Paul's speeches and sermons. It's the main one. Note that it is coming at a crucial moment in the book. If you could turn back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, you don't have to do that right this minute. I'm going to tell you what it says. But Acts 1, 8 is like a table of contents. You know, you get a new book, you look at a table of contents. What happens first? What happens second? Chapter 8, how many pages am I going to have to read? You know, the whole thing. Acts 1, 8 is the table of contents to the book of Acts. And he says, uh, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. The first chapter is that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And this speech of Stephen's is the end of the chapter. It's the end of chapter 1. This is the last time we're going to hear a specific reference to how the gospel was going out into Jerusalem. And if you look at chapter 8 and verse 2, if you're interested in chapter, the next chapter in the book, it's going to say, a lot of persecution comes up, and now we move to Judea and Samaria. We move to the next chapters in the book. Right? So this speech is crucial because it's the last thing we hear about how the gospel is going forth in Jerusalem. Uh, There are over 100 references in these 50 verses to the Old Testament. Stephen's a deacon, not chosen because of his teaching ability, but listen, he's prepared, and he knows the word. If, If you were... I mean, the way that he speaks to the situation is incredible because it's full of references to the Bible. He has been accused of two key things. One, this guy speaks against the temple, and two, this guy speaks against all of the customs that Moses delivered to us. And rather than go verse by verse through these 50 verses, let me just tell you exactly what Stephen does. He, he, he says, first, first and foremost, God is a global God. In verses 
uh, 1 down through the end of him talking about Joseph. He talks about Abraham and Joseph, verses 2 down through 16, and he basically says, you guys think that this place, this piece of real estate, this temple mount, this city, Jerusalem, that, th that God's been all about this? He basically says, from the very beginning, God has been a worldwide, global God. He called Abraham when he wasn't even in the promised land, and he promised to give the land. And prior to that, he made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. When he made his promise to Abraham, he said, I, in you, I will bless all of the families in the world. And again, the Jewish people are starting to say, they're listening to this, the Sanhedrin is starting to say, oh boy, I don't, I don't like where this guy's going with this. But note this, uh, he's begun with the thing that he has in common with his hearers. That's where you should begin, too, to talk about Jesus. Oh, uh, I misunderstood the scriptures, too. We all misunderstood the scriptures in our fathers. We misunderstood what it was saying about Jesus. We missed it. We missed that from the beginning, this wasn't about being a Jew. This wasn't about the, the sign of, of circumcision. That was all supposed to be temporary. From the beginning, this was about God as a worldwide God who intends to bless the whole earth through the Jewish people. We all missed it. You ever start a conversation with somebody about that? You might say something, an on-ramp to a conversation might be something like, that for a long time I misunderstood all the claims of Jesus too. I was right there with you. I, I, didn't, I didn't get it either. Here's some of the ways that people in the past, and me and you too, have made mistakes about who this Jesus is. I got into this sin pattern. I was an addict to that substance. I, I went the wrong way for so many years, and, and uh, if you uh, missed it in terms of who Jesus is on your first try, hey man, you're in good company. Me too. Me too. And there's this incredible on-ramp that, uh, that Stephen gives us. When he says, guys, from the beginning we missed it, it was never about Israel. It was always about the glory of God in the whole world. In fact, he starts in verse 2 and says, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father. And he is saying there, he was not a local, provincial, Jewish God. He's the God of glory. He's the God of the whole earth. He made promises to be a blessing to the whole world. He always intended to bring the gospel to the Gentile. And again... His Jewish friends are starting to say, oh, wait a second, I don't know if I like what this guy's saying. Joseph was supposed to deliver them, but uh, remember he said, I've got a dream, and, and I'm going to deliver you. And he, then Abraham says, our fathers, the patriarchs, the ones we identify with, the ones we, we think are so great, they sold them into slavery. They rejected God's servant. They're not so great, he's saying. He goes on from there, and then he talks about, um, and by the way, he says, but God saved us anyway, because he's sovereign. He goes on from there, and he talks about Moses. And he says, uh, Moses was actually a forerunner of Christ. And he's saying, he, he was God's servant, who was raised up by God to deliver us. And uh, we didn't protect him in the womb, so God protected him instead. And the Egyptian midwives took care of Jesus from the beginning. For the first 40 years of his life, he was educated in Egypt. We could go on from there. Then he came to us and he said, 
I'm here. I'm supposed to deliver you guys. I'm going to bring you out of 400 years of captivity. Let's go. And we rejected him. Then an angel appeared to him in the burning bush, and he came a second time. And even when he came a second time, we made his life a living headache by constantly complaining against him. We rejected him. And lastly, we get to verses 35 through 50. And here Stephen is saying, you guys, you have the the temple here, and you think the temple is all that. But can I just tell you that when we had, when our fathers were given the tabernacle, and we were given the ways that God wanted to be worshipped, that we were faithless in that, we literally, while Moses was getting the Ten Commandments, we, our fathers, made the golden calf, and we worshipped what we made with our own hands, while God, who made the heaven and earth, We rejected. And so he is talking about all the things he has in common with them, and he's saying, look, it wasn't about the land, right? It wasn't about the temple. It wasn't about all of the the legal systems in the world. It was always about the promise that God had given our forefathers, and we found a way every time to reject it. We rejected his prophets. We rejected his promises. We rejected his presence. And we have been a faithless generation. And then, Stephen brings his expose about the identity of Jesus to an important climactic moment. And now we're all the way into uh, uh, Acts chapter 7 and we're at verse 51. Because now he stops saying us. He said, we rejected, we went about our own own way, we did it in our own timing. But in verse 51, he he changes the pronoun. And he says this, you stiff necked people. Now, there's not going to be very many times in your life when you're called to get up in somebody's face and just go toe to toe and beat down verbally on them. Stephen was called to beat down verbally, to make his point. Stiff-necked is a reference to Exodus chapter 32, where while Moses was up at Mount Sinai getting the law, down in the valley the people were dancing and carousing to the golden calf. They were worshiping the golden calf. Stiff-necked people is the word that God used to describe the Israelites at that time. They rejected Moses. They've worshipped their own way. Stiff-necked is is not a word you want to be called because it's a word that God said to Moses, and he said, they're stiff-necked. Why don't you stand off to the side because I'm about to wipe them off the face of the earth, and we'll just start over. You and me, we'll start over. And you remember Moses went and prayed and said, oh, please have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. Hey, listen, before we get too high on our horse, That's how we should pray for the stiff-necked people, like Moses did. Oh, God, would you have mercy? They persist in their disobedience. They persist in their resistance. They don't see who Jesus is. They've rejected Moses, and now they've rejected Jesus. They've rejected all that you say you are. 
then you and I should pull Moses and, and say, oh God, please have mercy. But in this moment, Stephen is called to show them how they're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in heart, and they would have been getting angrier by the second. So uh, you may be circumcised physically, you Sanhedrin uh, leaders in the church, but your heart is turned against God. Your ears are uncircumcised. That means you can't hear a word the living God is actually saying in this moment. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And now, you see the word, he says, your, not our, as your fathers did, persist in rebellion, so do you. Verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He's talking about Isaiah. They killed those who announced the righteous one. Now, the term righteous one was used in an earlier uh, sermon in the book of Acts in chapter 3. So long story short, uh, I believe that Stephen's trying to use some of the same vernacular. He's trying to say the same thing as uh, Peter's sermon in Acts 3. But long story short, uh, righteous one indicates some important things. Number one, Jesus is the only one. He's the righteous He's in right relationship with God. He's the only one. That brings us to a really important question for today's text. Are you an arrogant bigot when you claim that Christianity is the only way? We've got to deal with that question, friends. Now, I would be an arrogant bigot if I said my opinion about what to do in this world, my opinion about a religion everyone should pick, should win the day. That's arrogance. But the reason why we get prepared in the Scriptures, the reason why we come to understand the Word of God is so that we can take a step back and see clearly what's really happening here. Because the righteous one who did everything we needed him to do on our behalf is the one that was announced from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He was talked about again in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, verses 1 through 3. He was talked about all through the scriptures. We could go to Isaiah chapter 53. They put Isaiah to death. Because he said there is a suffering servant to come who will take away the sins of the earth, of the world. And if this were just my opinion or your opinion about a real good religion everyone should check out, we would be arrogant. But if Jesus Christ is the only one from God, if he is the only one that God has set his affection on, if he is the only one who accomplished the righteousness of God, if he is the only one prophesied about from the Old Testament, if he is the only one who has been raised the third day for the forgiveness of sin, if he's the only one who can send his Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives, if he's the only one that stands to this day and the only one that convict us, can convict us of sin and the only one that can make us righteous to this day, then we are not loving to tell our friends in this generation, you're right. I think God's wrong about his righteous one. Oh, friends. 
Friends, let us not reason with the people around us in such a way that we use their vernacular and mindset and try to defend God. God is God. He has spoken. He has set his affection on his righteous one. He has identified him as the only way and the only truth and the only life. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, He is the only name, Jesus, under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And so we come to this point where we can realize that we are actually not loving. If we say, maybe God's wrong. Maybe there's more ways. This is why missions exists. Missions exist because in this generation, people will come to us and say, don't go to these age-old cultures and mess them up with some newfangled message that's not true to their indigenous nature. We need to preserve them in their natural habitat and and let them live their life. And if you haven't heard that before, you're going to hear it. Missions is a joke, they will say, because it messes with a culture of people that's been doing just fine without us. But Jesus is the only righteous one from God. He is the only way. And those beautiful, indigenous, culturally diverse, incredible places are people who will die and be condemned forever without Jesus. And so we go. We're on mission. We risk. We're called to give up our lives for this truth. Verses uh, 54 and, and onward. Now they heard these things. They were enraged. They ground their teeth at them. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, and by the way, the word enraged in verse 54, it's like they were so full of anger they couldn't see straight. They couldn't even control themselves. They were so angry with what he was saying. They're controlled by anger. He's controlled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 55. They gave, he gazed into heaven, and we end right where we started. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, again, you talk about the onlys. This is the only place we see Jesus standing after his work is done and he's risen from the dead. He doesn't stand. Jesus sits. He sits on his throne because his work is done. So why in this text do we have Jesus standing? And I think there's probably two or three or maybe even more reasons why Jesus is standing. He's standing in approval of Stephen. Proving of what Jesus, excuse me, of what Stephen has just done to, to identify Jesus before the Sanhedrin. When he said, hey, you want to know what I say about Moses? I say you rejected Moses. You want to know what I say about the traditions of Moses? I say they were temporary. You want to know what I say about this temple? I say that it was never, here's what Stephen said, it was never intended to be permanent. Of course the temple's over. Jesus is our temple. From the beginning, the the tabernacle and the temple is just a copy. When we see in Revelation chapter 21, we know there's not going to be a temple in heaven. Why? In the New Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus is our temple. And so what Stephen has been saying is, you want to know what I say about the temple? Yeah, it's over. It's still standing here. By the way, about 30 years later, 
Rome came in and toppled the temple, and it's been toppled ever since. And in essence, what Stephen is saying in this passage is, you can keep doing the sacrifices if you want, but you can't stay Jewish and keep trusting the sacrifices and be right with God any longer. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pointed to. And if you're going to be right with God, you're going to have to receive the righteous one. You're going to have to receive Christ. But here you are, continuing to reject him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. I think he, he stood. Jesus was standing uh, in approval of Stephen. I think he was standing to welcome Stephen home. I have in my mind Luke chapter 15, the faithful father. The, the son is in the far-off country, and that part of the story is not what I have in mind. But what I have in mind is the father ready for the son to come home. He's standing, waiting, receiving. He's standing. And I think he's also standing because this is the last chapter of the spread of the gospel to Jerusalem. Jesus has said, don't tell anyone. And now they've been telling people. And of course, now they've been told to tell people. And now the gospel is about to go to the whole world. It's about to make the leap out of Jerusalem. And Jesus is standing in heaven going, okay, this is going to get interesting. Listen, if you risk everything, and they take your life, can I just really encourage you? Jesus will be there to welcome you home. He sees what's happening in your life. It's worth it to give up a few days, a few months, a few years breathing oxygen in this world to stand for the glory of God. He'll be there to welcome you home. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. He knows. He takes no delight in the death of his saints. He knows and loves you. And my friends, we have to stop telling our kids that Christianity is a cultural way of looking at life, a, 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 a religious tradition, a, a worldwide comparative religion. It is a mission for the living king of kings that God has called us to, and we are called to put our life on the line and our relationships on the line to stand for him. And he said, verse 56 now, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. We've got to close that, that reference there to the Son of Man. Just jot in the, jot in the margin of your Bible, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Because what he's saying when he says son of man, he's saying this. The one with all power, the one for whom he's a worldwide God. I'm going to read it to you real quick. Uh, he, uh, to him was given, the son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. For who? Israel? All people. All peoples all nations, all languages should serve him. The Jews would have said in the, in the hearing, the Sanhedrin would have said, we put him to death. And Stephen's saying, I see the Son of Man, he's called the Son of Man 85 times in the New Testament, once in the book of Acts, right here. I see the Son of Man, oh, he's not dead. He's standing. He's standing to receive me.
So my friends, you're called to be a witness to this Jesus. Take the God of glory seriously. Let his heavens provide you. Let his scriptures, his heaviness provide you with a a confidence to love Jesus more. Join Stephen, join with us in this end of the earth mission to proclaim Jesus everywhere we go with grace, with wisdom, that Jesus alone is God's servant. Prepare by knowing and loving God's word. Be in the scripture so you can tell his story accurately and in a helpful way. Get better at recognizing your opportunities. My friends, like me, you squander opportunities to speak for Jesus all the time. We're all getting better at that. Don't beat yourself up about it. Devote yourself to learning and growing and looking and praying. And finally, our anthem, the presence and approval of Jesus is better than all the world's comforts. Let's stand and be dismissed. Father, help us. We're weak. We want to go with your grace and go with your mercy. So we ask that we would be on mission as we go, telling everyone we can with grace and kindness, but in no uncertain terms. Jesus is the righteous one from God. He's the son of man. We cannot tell you in this lifetime, in this culture, there are many ways to God because God has told us very clearly there's one. We receive and love him, fill our mouths now with wisdom and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.